Hello, Media Evil listeners. I just wanted to make a couple brief comments in advance of this week's episode. First of all, while this episode was recorded long before our current announcement of a pandemic, Media Evil is able to continue through pretty much anything because virtually all of us episodes are recorded without the host and guest ever being in the same room. So while I might be spending a lot of time alone in my house with my dog and cat, Media Evil will keep going over the course of this time. Second, I'm introducing an Ask a Medievalist feature. And if I get enough questions, I will do a bonus episode of just me answering your history questions. So if that appeals to you and you're curious about anything involving the medieval world, just send me an email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Finally, given that these episodes were recorded far in advance, this episode was also recorded well before Max von Sydow's death. So given that, I just wanted to note briefly that my guest and I have a lot of respect for him as an actor, and any mocking that you will hear is entirely loving and in jest. Thanks for listening to Media Evil, and barring more of an apocalypse than we currently have, you'll continue to see episodes every two weeks. Enjoy this one. Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today in the second of our Ingmar Bergman retrospective, I again have Morgan Morales with me to talk about Virgin Spring. Hi, Morgan. Hello. I mean, if you guys listened to the last episode, my credentials are the same. (laughs) So anything you want to add about why you wanted to make sure to cover both of these films from Bergman about the medieval world? Well, we were standing outside of a sushi restaurant in North Carolina, (laughs) and it popped into my head, let's talk about these two Swedish medieval movies. And that was about the extent of it. (laughs) But also just, you know, as a, as, you know, someone who's really interested in film history and history in film and who watches a lot of classic movies, this is kind of right up my alley. I actually used to go, so the Turner Classic Movies Cable Channel has a film festival in Hollywood every year, the redundantly named Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's also, it's a really great event. So they, they do screenings over the course of four days. Um, and it's a really wide variety of movies, things that are, you know, a little bit more well-known, like they've shown in American in Paris, they've shown Cabaret, and then smaller movies that I never heard of in titles I can't remember, though I did watch them and enjoy them. And also a really good um, selection of international films. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an event I went to three years in a row. And if I still lived in California, I'd probably still be going. And they actually regularly show Bergman movies. They showed Seventh Seal the last year I was there and. Max von Sydow actually was there at the festival to talk about the movie afterwards. Oh, huh. I did not actually go to that because the way it goes is depending on the level of pass that you buy, you have to line up particularly early for certain screenings. And instead, I chose to go line up to hear Jane Fonda talk about On Golden Pond because I was hoping to hear her talk about Catherine Hepburn. 
And if you guys listen to the Lion in Winter episode, you know I love Catherine Hepburn. So yeah. <laughs> it didn't disappoint. She did talk about Catherine Hepburn. But yeah, so I mean, there's kind of that long love of classic film, and this is an extension of that. Virgin Spring, today's movie, is uh, came out in 1960, uh, also directed by Ingmar Bergman. I believe won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Yes. Also starring Max von Sydow, playing uh, uh, Torah. And uh, the other person I was going to note cast-wise, since once again it is a group of Swedish actors that I am not very familiar with, but that, as we were talking about last time, there are a number of actors that Bergman worked with repeatedly. And Gunnel Lindblom, who plays Ingri, also played the nameless girl in The Seventh Seal. She did. At least she gets a name this time. Yes. Good for her. She has a name. She does. And I, I considerably more agency. Yes. And she has by far from the worst fate of women in this movie. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, three years later, she's gone a few steps up. Uh-huh. She has moved up. She has moved up in Ingmar Bergman's medieval world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to take into the main, the first main section, the enumeratio or recap. And just a note for our listeners, a major content warning for rape for this film. I, in fact, did not entirely know what I was getting into because I did not look up what the premise of this movie was. I just started watching it and then a lot of things happened. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, it is a common thread throughout the movie. And I think it is good to warn listeners because it is something that you and I will continuously reference throughout this podcast episode because it is at the heart of the plot. Yes. So a very brief, just kind of orienting recap. The plot centers around a young woman named Corinne who is on her way to church when she is raped and then murdered by a group of herdsmen. They then unknowingly seek shelter at her parents' home. And when they are found out, her father takes a bloody vengeance, killing the two herdsmen who are responsible for the actual rape, as well as the boy who is traveling with them. He feels some amount of guilt about this. Ingeri, who is the uh, a household servant who is pregnant, also feels guilt and feels responsibility because she witnessed the rape and also thinks that she cursed Corinne. And uh, they go to find Corinne's corpse, and the film ends seeing that a spring has miraculously welled up at the spot where her body was found. You know, on the subject of people building churches where virgins mm-hmm. may have been. Yep. <laughs> cheery. Yeah. Very cheery. Yeah. So we begin with introductions to the household, and Ingeri is actually the person who we meet first. She seems to be pregnant out of wedlock. We don't originally know exactly what's happening there. She also seems to be maybe more into the pagan gods than Jesus because we hear her calling out to the pagan god Odin while clutching a very phallic-looking pole, which was an interesting choice. It was an interesting choice, yeah. But unfortunately, thanks to the Marvel influence on all the film, I just kept thinking of Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins would have fixed this shit. You know, I think he could have. I also, I mean, related to the religion thing, I just did watch him play Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth would not have fixed this shit. Oh no, no, he <laughs> slide that under the proverbial Vatican rug. He would have. Yeah, yeah. We also meet the prosperous owners of the household, Tora and Maretta, who we see praying before a crucifix. Which I'll just make my brief art historical note here that the crucifix, the Jesus is suffering a little too much for the 12th century. 
<laughs> the, the 12th century is the era of uh, what I like to call chill Jesus. Okay. Jesus who sort of looks like he doesn't over much mind that he's being crucified. This is like the Jesus that gets mentioned in Talladega Nights, the ballad of Rick, Ricky Bobby, where he wears a tuxedo t-shirt because he means business, yeah. but you know, he likes to party. <laughs> yeah, he's got like, he's got like really nice cloaks on and is just like hanging out and just like, eh, I mean, this crucifixion thing's happening, but like, I'm good. You know, I know how this story ends. Yeah. Being okay. It'll be so okay. Nice doing this. It's so cool. Yeah. My dad said it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in the kind of 13th, 14th century that we transition into this emphasis on a suffering Christ where he starts to get a lot skinnier and a lot bloodier. And that's the Christ that we see as well as the kind of imitatio Christi. She, uh, she burns herself because, with a candle that she's holding because it's Friday and she kind of does this in memory of the Lord's passion. And that's a kind of imitation of Christ and of the suffering and pain of Christ that also feels very late medieval. And this is indicated as supposed to be the 12th century. Mm-hmm. So at least we have a clear indication of the time period here. Yes. Well, we, we had a clear indication in the last time that just made everything else wrong. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and the indication that I'm using, by the way, is coming from the original ballad that this is based on, which I'll talk more about later. The ballad is 13th century and is supposed to describe the events surrounding the building of a church in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. We also see Frida, the housekeeper, who, getting in early to our existential angst, which is also on display in this film, that she has this lengthy discussion about like death and the misery of life while talking to some uh, like baby chicks that she's you know sweeping out from under her apron. Like, man, like. Let, let these, like, baby chickens just chill for a second. Like, you're going to eat them, uh, like, soon enough. Like, let them relax for five minutes first. I was going to say, their their fate is not bright, so. But, like, let them have a happy life until then. Don't, like, the existential angst is going to spoil the meat. <laughs> <laughs> the character who is still thus far absent but mentioned is Corinne, uh, Tora and Marga and what is her name? Maretta's daughter, who is described as currently sleeping in and may or may not be sick. When asked if she has a fever, Ingeri very snarkily replies that she certainly burned with fever at the dance last night, which is probably the medieval version of calling somebody a slut. Yeah, there's some there's some real judgment and slut shaming going on there. Oh yeah, there's some uncomfortable tensions and some women hating women yeah i mean never mind the fact that one of them is pregnant and not married yeah the slut shaming as we'll see is going to go both ways it is it it definitely (laughs) is i mean i mean and i'm not slut shaming in gary but there is still you know the whole let he who is without sin cast the first stone right but also in gary is praying to odin so yeah a lot so she clearly doesn't care about that yeah yeah Maretta and Tora discuss the parenting styles, with the claim being made that Maretta is too permissive and Tora is too strict. That is never on display in this film. Just no. A quick note. <laughs> no. Tora lets her get away with pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. And Maretta then goes to Corinne because they have these candles that need to be brought to the church, and traditionally they're supposed to be brought by a virgin, and she's the only virgin of the household. <laughs> so uncomfortable it is so uncomfortable that she's really is she's being tasked with this because her yeah yes 
This is like the medieval version of T.I. having his do- daughter's doctor check. Oh my god, it is. Ingrid <laughs> <laughs> uh, starts making sandwiches and hides a frog in one, which I think is just to be an asshole. I couldn't quite tell. So I kind of feel with Ingeri, but just because the way she presents herself, how she's dressed, there's almost this kind of barbaric presentation to her. Yes. That, that's intentional to show this divide between the two of them. Like, Ingeri is kind of this, this wild, untamed servant girl, and I think that kind of putting the frog in the sandwiches is, is indicative of this lack of maturity. Because part of her her actions, I think, come across as quite childlike. As do Corinne's, for that matter. Yeah, no, no. Corinne is just a a, a straight-up spoiled little brat. Yeah, there is not a lot of maturity on display in this, among the young people of this film. This is what happens when your parents don't actually raise you. Right. And just let you do whatever you want. But yeah, and it's also uh, with uh, Ingeri, she's also, uh, interestingly, is much darker, and I'm, so she has dark hair. It looks like she might actually have slightly darker skin, though I'm not 100% sure if that's right, if it was just kind of the way the shadows were happening, because it's a black and white film. It is, but it's also very, I mean, black and white photography and cinematography are really intentional in how they light different people. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, the reason that costume designer Edith Head used to wear blue lenses is because she needed to know how things were going to photograph in black and white. The modern reference from that is Edna Mode from The Incredibles is modeled on that costume designer. So I think the black and white photography, whether or not the actress playing Gary is in fact a little bit more tan than the actress playing Karin, she is still being photographed having either darker skin or within shadow that is supposed to show, I think, this dichotomy between good and evil. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot happening there in terms of it being portrayed as these kind of antitheses to one another. Yeah. We finally meet Karin who, my God, is a spoiled brat. Mm -hmm. It is made very clear that she is not sick. She just didn't feel like getting up. And then also basically says, I'm not going to get up and go to church unless I can wear my fanciest clothes today. And so she like, there's like this like whole thing with her getting dressed. And she's like wearing this shift that was embroidered by 15 maidens. And uh, yeah, and she's just like very obnoxious and spoiled her father, um, I, I can't remember, like, she, she, we then see her interact with her father, and in contrast to the promised strictness, we instead see him, like, hugging her and, like, swinging her around, and honestly, their relationship and the physical aspects of their interaction feel not okay and normal for a girl's relationship with her father at her age, which is in her, I would say, mid to late teens. Yeah, so there is actually, so I was reading a little bit about some of, um, I was reading some film commentary about this particular movie, and it is actually pretty widely discussed that the relationship is uncomfortable in an incestuous way. Yeah, it's it's something that I I kind of, like, it kind of struck me when I was watching that, like, this feels weird, and then subsequently read that there is that there are supposed to be hints of that or that most people assume that there are kind of deliberately hints of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but as I said, it's definitely something that like I picked up on without expecting it. So. No, nothing in this movie is particularly subtle. No, no, it's not a subtle movie. <laughs> yep. We also see Frida chatting with a number mem- another member of the household, Simon, who remarks that in his travels, he has seen both women in churches since I guess those are equivalently inanimate objects. 
and also comments on the fact that the churches are built of mortar and stone and with windows every color of the rainbow, which I mentioned because architecture is a like sort of sub motif that it comes up toward the end again. Yeah. It actually looks like the, the, the little um, homestead area that they have. I really think they just recycled the set from the town with the tavern from Seventh Seal. Yeah, I bet you're right. I mean, maybe they they kind of reoriented some of the buildings, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they just reused them. Yeah, no, I I would not be at all surprised either if that was the case. Yeah. Which, you know, that's fine. I didn't actually do the research on, like, Swedish household architecture, to be honest, so... Well, but it's also, I mean, it's incredibly common within film. I mean, this is why there are backlots yeah. on studios in Los Angeles, in the greater Los Angeles area, because these buildings are going to be used and repurposed for several different things. I mean, the, the clock tower from Back to the Future was also a high school on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so... Oh, that's so funny. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they were the same. So it's not the main Sunnydale High School, but it's there's a flashback mm-hmm. episode when Buffy was in high school in Los Angeles. Yeah. And she's sitting on the steps, and it's when she finds out for the first time that she's a slayer. Right. It's the clock tower building from Back to the Future. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Corinne finally goes to church after taking what I can only assume is approximately three hours to get dressed. Ingeri accompanies her, and we increasingly see the tensions between the two young women. Ingeri basically straight up tells Corinne that she's probably going to get either seduced or raped, and doesn't seem too upset about this as being something that's going to happen to this woman that she's allegedly sort of friends with, or I guess, you know, medieval frenemies. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's also maybe one of those things where when you have someone in the house working at a similar age as one of the family that's kind of that sort of friendship but with knowing that one of you is in a position of power over the other right yeah I mean it's a dynamic that to some extent I think is realistic and makes sense but it's also it's it's very unpleasant It, it is in that not that particular line but there are actually like I think there are like bits here and there of their converse. There might be bits here and there of their conversation that pass the Bechdel test. I'm not sure. The movie actually does pass the Bechdel test because of her conversation with her mother about clothing, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. But you know, she had there, there actually is a lot of at least conversation between the two women, even if a decent amount of it is ultimately about men, Mm -hmm. but it's so much of it is so barbed and it's very depressing that this movie seems so insistent on there being ultimately a pretty negative relationship in a lot of ways between these two young women. Yeah, and so there there are other Ingmar Bergman movies that depict negative relationships between two women. I'm trying to remember if Persona does the same thing. I don't really think it does. But Autumn Sonata, which I mentioned in the Seventh Seal podcast, which is the one that I like the most and also stars the best Bergman to come out of Sweden, is a really negative relationship between a mother and a daughter. It's very Mm. much about maternal expectations for her daughter and a failure to live up to them, Um, especially when because the mother is this this um, world class classical musician and her daughter never really quite compared, even though she can play beautifully. So it's that tension there. Mm -hmm. But also the movie is ultimately kind of about reconciliation. Yeah. So I think that there is a progression from what's happening in 1960 and then what what Ingmar Bergman did about 15 le- year, 15 years later when he did Autumn Sonata. Mm-hmm. Hope may- maybe he got better. <laughs> or maybe he just thought this would be more interesting. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> well, good to know that he perhaps improved on depicting relationships between women because in this film I am not immensely impressed. 
No. <laughs> the conversation also includes the fact that Corinne has been apparently very, very friendly with the man who is the father of Ingeri's child and who seems to have immediately ditched her and is providing no support whatsoever to her or it is presumed not planning on providing support for the unborn child when the mm -hmm. child is born. And uh, there is an interesting question that is not exactly at any point indicated how consensual exactly that sex act that impregnated Ingeri was. Right. I mean, as many theories as I could have, and I have one theory, I, just, I don't think it ultimately matters to Ingmar Bergman in this particular story. No, I don't think it does either, and I find that telling. Yeah. I guess that, that she is just, that essentially he just wants to portray her as fallen in a particular way that allows her to function as a contrast to the original Corinne and... Uh, it, I think, really does that character a disservice. It is a disservice, and I think, and I mean, we'll get to this in a little bit, but that's because ultimately this is Tura's story. Yes. Yes, it is. So. Yes. But more on that later. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Gary also kind of calls Corinne out for flirting with her baby daddy, and uh then basically suggests that like, yeah. And then Corinne's like, oh no, I was trying to get him to like agree to like help you with the baby. And he was, and she was like, yeah, I bet he'll help if like you let him fuck you more or less. And Corinne slaps her. It's which, not unwarranted. It's not unwarranted, especially also like, not that I'm justifying what the class relations are, but they are what they are. They are. Yeah. It's not entirely unexpected. Mm-hmm. As they arrive at the forest en route to church, uh, Ingeri is freaked out by the forest and begs to go back. So Corinne, in an astonishing display of friendship and amity, decides to ditch her at the cottage of a creepy stranger and go on without her. <laughs> Said creepy stranger introduces himself with a very normal, oh, nowadays I have no name, statement, and then shows her his collection of human and animal body parts. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> But this, I think, is it's it's the it's the kind of role that we talked about in Seventh Seal, and I mean, we're probably going to mm -hmm. reference that podcast quite frequently since this is our Ingmar Bergman retrospective. But it, it's you know the kind of coming in and out stage role, right? And that's who this guy is. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I would have probably enjoyed hearing more about the body parts. Yeah, that would have been fun. Yeah. I was, I was curious about all the plans for the body parts, but instead then he starts groping her because of course he does and she runs away. I mean, it's, it's the medieval era. How else are you supposed to depict how bad it was for women? Yep. Women just getting raped all the time. Yes. Rape-a-palooza back then. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll go ahead and make that comment about that now. I've made this in other episodes before. It seems to be beyond the imagination of many particularly male people making movies about the middle ages that perhaps the middle ages wasn't a period in which rape was just an everyday rampant occurrence for most to all women i feel very sure that this is a a phenomenon that reflects not the realities of the Middle Ages, where rape undoubtedly happened and rape culture undoubtedly existed, but I think there's probably an argument to be made that overall rates of how likely you were to be raped are not actually that different in the Middle Ages than they are in the United States in 2020. No, I don't think so either. And it's also just lazy storytelling. 
it's very lazy storytelling, but I also think it's like, I think it's insidious. I think that it's an attempt to displace uh, violence and in particular sexual violence and rape onto the middle ages as something that was a thing that happened back then so that they can pretend that now things are better. I, I agree. And it's also, it's usually, it's never done in a way that is about the woman. Right, exactly. That this story is, as we mentioned before, is ultimately going to be really about a man in terms of the character who matters and who is the primary person affected by what is going to be a rape and murder of a young woman. Right. And I mean, that is essentially, I mean, that's why I stopped watching Game of Thrones. I can tell you the exact minute, the exact moment when I pieced the fuck out on that show. Mm -hmm. And it was when Sansa Stark was raped. Mm -hmm. And the camera panned to Theon Greyjoy. Yeah. I don't know how they handled the rest of it. I was told by someone that the show got better, but my complaint wasn't that the show was going down in quality. It's that it was staying exactly the same and relying on violence against women, particularly sexual violence, to depict a particularly harsh environment. But it is also indicative of just a story trend that I'm so sick of where... Rape is used to tell the story of a man. In in the case of Game of Thrones, I felt that they wanted to redeem Theon Greyjoy, and we're doing that through the rape of Sansa Stark. Yeah. I mean, and it is incredibly common. I can really, at this moment, think of only two examples where I think that rape was handled well and where it was about the woman who was raped, and that is the movie Room with Brie Larson, Mm -hmm. because it is entirely through the eyes of the five-year-old child character about her PTSD after yeah. repeated rape after through the course of seven years to the point where her rapist doesn't even have a name because it's her story. Huh. And then the second one is the first season of Marvel's Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. The first season of that show, all 13 episodes are entirely about Jessica Jones dealing with the PTSD of being under mind control for six months and through that mind control being repeatedly raped by this villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's very telling that the last episode of that season, because the, the title of the comic book is also known as Jessica Jones. So every episode title is also known as, and then the episode title. So the episode title for that is also known as smile. And it's that trope of, you know, supposedly nice guys telling women to smile. And that's the episode where she fully confronts her attacker. Uh huh. So, and those are the, those are the only two two examples that I, that are coming to mind right now that really do an accurate job of showing the PTSD that women go through as a result of assault, in this case, repeated assault and extended periods of assault, but also focus the story squarely on those women. Yeah. There's a new film coming out actually called a uh, promising young woman, the which Carrie Mulligan I movie. saw the trailer for, which is a, it's as far as I can tell, seems to be focused on a woman who's essentially trying to seek revenge for a rape and what seems to have been a kind of like date rape you know scenario where ultimately the rapist was given the benefit of the doubt as far as I can tell from what's implied in the trailers yeah and yeah I'm very curious about that film I'm curious about it too it's um with Carrie Mulligan yes who I often don't love but I am curious enough about the movie Carrie Mulligan is someone who needs a particularly good role in order to shine and those tend to be few and far between yeah unfortunately she should not have played Daisy no (laughs) in her defense nothing about that movie should have been made that is fair yeah as an assessment of that movie yeah but yeah so that is a general issue yeah so you know 
I did not know anything about this movie going in. So uh, while I did immediately make a comment about, Ugh, now we have some uh, new men who are going to stare at Corinne and breathe heavily. So that's great. Mm-hmm. And this unsurprisingly gets worse. It does get Corinne worse. is portrayed as an absolute fucking idiot throughout this scene. She I'm is, sorry. She is dumber than the post that Ingeri was hugging at the beginning. Yes. Which is ultimately, I imagine, a failure of parenting. That, like, she never got taught about stranger danger? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Kar never learned about stranger danger. And also, this is the fact that her parents sheltered her. Right. Completely. So she meets these, like, absolute fucking creeps. And I think one of them's like, oh, like, we, like, have no one to take care of. Like, we, like, we're abandoned by our parents. She's like, who takes care of you? I'm like, they're fucking 30 years old. They don't need anybody to take care of them. I mean, the guy is almost bald and has chest hair. Yeah, one of them might be 50. Yes. Like, (laughs) they're not helpless. Like, they're not helpless children. And so then she, like, offers to, like, eat lunch with them in an isolated grove somewhere. Great. Great idea. Yep. And uh, goes with them. They keep giving her compliments and, like, semi-groping her. And then she, like, just responds, like, cheerily to all of these. uh, Basically until, like, one of them actually, like, grabs her. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to entirely reproduce the graphic description. But, like, I'll just say, like, one of them rapes her and one of the... And the other adult man, like, helps to hold her down. It is. It's... So I... Okay, I did know what this was about going in because um, I had seen it before, but it been it had been several several years, probably about five or six years since I last saw it. I had forgotten just how graphic this is. Yes, it's it's you... incredibly graphic. I mean, very intentionally uncomfortable. Yes, there is no nudity, but it is uh, in no way unclear what is happening. Right. And I I mean, I was noticing that there was no nudity, but I was actually honestly kind of surprised at how far they pull up the skirts of her dress. Yes. But it is. It's incredibly graphic. It's something that could have never been done in a rape scene in a movie coming out of the United States. Um, And there are rape scenes that are that are in films um, in the United States at this time, but though it's usually, you know, a little bit more subtle. It's like you see like maybe someone fall down and then the camera pans away and you're supposed to infer what happens based on that. This is like, you are full on seeing the actual act and it's, it's really shocking. Yes. And more shocking than I think most us, I mean, most movies in general would go for now. Yeah. There, there's a real, um, I think that raises somewhat of an interesting conversation about sex and violence as a, in European films as opposed to U S films. But yeah. this isn't necessarily a scene that is about sex, but a scene that is about violence. Yes. And uh, the one thing I will say in its favor is that that is very much the case that it's a violent scene. I don't think it's supposed to be titillating. No. Which is a problem that I've had with some rape scenes in films that I felt like they are being played as something that is supposed to titillate the audience in a particular way. And I don't think this is doing that. I think it is supposed to be horrific. It's supposed to be horrific. And I mean, these herdsmen look intentionally terrible yes they look intentionally menacing i mean one of my notes is just how terrible their teeth are for one thing yeah no they are menacing they are creepy 
I will say also, I mean, that's also a choice in that the way in which they are physically portrayed is also one that really emphasizes the class differentiation between uh, them and Karin. Yeah. Which is somewhat problematic in a lot of ways, but... Yeah, I have have some comments on uh, that later, too. I mean, especially given that in the Middle Ages, as now, if you're going to be raped, you are quite likely, honestly, to probably be, especially if you are of current, if you are of current status, you are probably very likely to be raped instead by somebody of your own status, as opposed to necessarily somebody, you know, this like random stranger. Yeah, she's probably more likely to be raped by someone she knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as then as now, yes. Yeah, and uh, but yes, I mean, so it is. It's a it's a deeply disturbing scene. And, uh, I mean, there's this very brief hint at, like, the movie thinking for two seconds about how this rape affects her that we see her kind of pacing back and forth. And uh, the actress, who is clearly very talented, and you can see in her face and the way she moves the trauma that she has experienced. Mm -hmm. And then they hit her over the head and kill her. Yeah. And also uh, steal her clothing. Yeah. So then it stops being about her. Yes. And... uh, ceases unsurprisingly to be about her and becomes uh, primarily about her father for the rest of the film and uh, that really is the area where it becomes unforgivable to me that if this movie if she had survived and this movie had stayed about how Karen dealt with this horrific experience mm-hmm. I think maybe it could have redeemed itself right and that's not what it did no because it's to a story yeah yeah. So she's dead. Ingeri had caught up with her and witnessed the rape. She's holding a rock, although let's be honest, she probably couldn't even have done much, but regardless seems to be sort of, for whatever reason, sort of paralyzed and does not actually do anything. Mm-hmm. The men then take off and leave the little boy and leave the boy with the goats. The, Boy seems to be feeling guilty. I'm just going to say right now, he's not feeling guilty enough for me to actually feel that bad for him. No, no. He's, I mean, he, he makes no protest whatsoever than looking vaguely upset. Especially because uh, it's not believable, given how this scene plays out, that this hasn't happened before. Right. Because those Which two means- go into that attack knowing exactly what to do. Exactly. It was so calculated that it is not possible that they have not raped, murdered, and robbed other young women in exactly this fashion previously. Right. And given that in particular, this is, yes, he's a child, but still he's a child who has probably witnessed these two people who claim to be his brothers, but I feel like it's implied that maybe they're really not, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But these two people who he lives with essentially that he has probably witnessed them rape and murder multiple young women and has never made any effort to go to the authorities. Right. Like that's what we know. Right. So the fact that he feels guilt and not, and like, you know, because he feels guilty, he like tries to eat some bread and he throws up and then he sort of half-heartedly tries to bury the body. That's not enough for me to feel like I'm supposed to give a shit about this child. No, it's too little too late. It's too little too late. And I mean, he knows exactly who these people are. He knows who he is traveling with. And he might not have an enormous amount of options. They might not be his brothers. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it wouldn't surprise me if one of them was actually his father. Or if they just kidnapped Mm. the kid to perhaps, you know, 
even to use him to invoke sympathy from people who are unknown and to make money that way, which essentially makes him a prop. But also, you're right. He has actually been seeing this behavior because this is not something new for them. This is a little bit like Jan's and Seventh Seal saying, you know, admitting that he's a serial rapist. Right, exactly. And so he... I mean, these two are these two are also serial rapists. That's that's the implication here, with how yeah. well they execute everything about this. Exactly, and so he is then at least complicit in their crime of like of serial rape. And so, for me, that's and he knows enough to know that it's wrong. Exactly, and so he knows enough to know that it's wrong. And has these, like, visceral reactions and feelings of guilt, and yet has never, ever made any effort to do anything about this. Right. And, yeah, that just, for me, that means that I am not really going to worry about his fate that much. No, and I think that that there's even stronger indication of why, I mean, I'm having the similar feeling and the similar issue with that. There, There is indication of that later when they get to their next destination. Because there are certain choices that he makes there as well. Yes, exactly. So their next destination is that the herdsmen unknowingly seek shelter with Karin's family. Mm -hmm. And Tora is very nice and he gives them food. He tells them they can stay in the manor for the night. And even raises the possibility of offering them a job. Because he doesn't know that they're a bunch of rapist fucks. No, it's that good Christian charity. Yeah. There's there's a line when uh, one of the members of the household muses, I saw the May Queen herself ride into the sun, but she never returned, which because I have seen Midsummer, I immediately was like, oh, can we sew these men into some bear costumes? <laughs> <laughs> so I also thought of Midsummer, but I thought of setting a cottage on fire. <laughs> I will say... I got to the, like, vengeance, vengeance, way before Tora got to the vengeance, vengeance. Yeah, um, yeah. Which might say something about me, but... The boy is feels guilt and is unable, therefore, to eat. One of the interesting things is that the one of the, um, the adult men then says, oh, like, you know, he gets like this sometimes when he's been starving for a while, and then, and, like, you know, it'll, like, pass if you don't fuss over him, and that also made me wonder, again, speaking about what we were talking about before, if this is a regular thing, like if this always happens after he sees them rape and murder somebody? And it very well might. So this is the issue that I have here with this, is that, is it Frida, the maid? Mm-hmm. There's offer the to help her. Yeah. yeah, there's offer to help him. There's offer to take him from that table, take him away from these two men, and get him the help that he needs to feel better. But that is also a potential escape plan for him. Mm-hmm. And he does not take it. Right, exactly. And that's and that's a big part of the problem for me, is that I know that he has a child and he's scared of repercussions and things like that, but he has an opportunity where he easily could, under the excuse of being sick, get away and he could tell these people who he doesn't know are Karin's parents, but he knows are, like, respectable people who probably have, you know, some amount of standing in the region and, you know, can could like figure out what happened and uh, tell whoever the the you know family involved were etc like yeah and he also saw Tura when they walked up to the gates he's cutting an imposing figure when he's standing there 
oh yeah, like this is clearly a wealthy, powerful person. Right. And therefore exactly the right, who has also shown an immense amount of kindness. It seemed the obvious interpretation should be that if he told him what had happened, I actually genuinely think like he would have killed the men and saved the boy. Right. If the boy had confessed. But the boy went along with it. He had these opportunities, several of them. And also given that Tara has this position and this obvious wealth, there's also an aspect of protection in that. Yes, that he could protect him from these other two men. Right. Mareta is nervous about where Corin might be. Getting in again to the lack of discipline, Tora is just like, yeah, she's like stayed in the village without permission before all the time. I'm sure she's fine. She'll be back tomorrow. And it's like, this is not how you should run your household and parent. No, I mean, I mean, there are issues with Mereta's parenting, but Tura is just like, whatever. I mean, I know it's the 12th century, but like, if I'd ever at that age just like not come home and had not gotten permission to be someplace else and my parents had no idea what they were, like, if I came home the next day, they would murder me themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even as old as I am now, my dad wants me to call him whenever the plane lands, even if I'm not going to see him. It's Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, okay, let me know when you get to your layover. Okay, let me know when you land. Okay, let me know when you get on the train. It's a yeah. ass woman. Yeah. That's like normal parenting. It is normal parenting. It's normal parenting concern. Um, I don't know if Tara maybe just thinks, well, God will take care of it. Right. But, yeah. So I find that very frustrating, especially given, like, she has, like, it's a long distance, it seems, that she has to travel to get to this village, even not assuming foul play. I'm, su- like, I feel like they should, like, send out a search party and make sure he's not lost in the woods, like. I mean, also just sending her out on her own to begin with is questionable, with just in Gary to go with her. Right. And, yeah, so just in general, like, there's just so many poor parenting decisions that are made overall here. Yeah, they're not good parents at all. Yeah. And also just, by the way, like, the thing about her, like, wearing this, like, super fancy outfit. Mm -hmm. Displaying your wealth in that context is also very arguably not a good idea. That people in the medieval world are aware that there are potentially a certain routes where, like, you would run into robbers or highwaymen. And, like, you don't want it to be very, very obvious that you are very rich. Right. So basically every single one of them is dumb as a post. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I blame the parents, and also I blame Ingmar Bergman for this portrayal. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the herdsmen try to sell Maretta, however, Corin's silk shift, claiming that it belonged to their sister, and uh, they actually, there's a specific detail that they're like, it was woven by nine maidens, and of course Maretta knows, because, that, because we talked about this earlier, that it was woven by 15. And uh, Maretta, I, you know, props where props are due solid poker face it is yeah she gives nothing away yeah that you could not tell looking at her face what her actual reaction is right and she just uh and so she just says something along the lines of oh i will have to go and check with my husband about what an appropriate reward is for such a nice gift Mm -hmm. or such an expensive gift or whatever the phrasing is and she goes out she locks the kind of door behind her there's a kind of bar to put over the door that she goes out and she does that 
And only after she's unsafely outside does she start crying. This is the smartest Uh, thing that anyone does in this movie. Oh, by far. By far. Yeah. I also, my my bloodthirstiness is coming out. I just immediately, like, I'm, like, writing my notes. My notes at this point have kind of devolved in in their original version into just, like, every line is, like, where is the murder? Why isn't the murder happening? Did, Did I miss the murder? And... So I think at this point, I think my line was, I wonder what the reward is. Is it murder? I hope it's murder. <laughs> <laughs> she goes up and uh, tells Tora about this. He gets his sword and starts very, very, very slowly getting moving. As he comes down, he sees Gary, who he obviously knows went with Corin. She expresses an immense amount of guilt in this moment that she says that it was really that she is the one who is in fact most to blame because uh, she, you know, wanted this to happen out of resentment and uh, that she kind of fears that she and creepy old dude cursed her essentially, mm-hmm. which is just depressing. It, it is. It's yeah. I mean, all the guilt in. Yeah. Yeah. Tara takes like seven hours to, like, it literally must. I think it's the entire night. I think it's, like, that this takes him. Yeah, I, that's a long time to kind seven of hours. ritually purify himself for murder. Yeah, so he has to, like, cut down a tree and hit himself with some tree branches and, like, take a bath. And then finally goes into the room where the herdsmen are sleeping and then sits down and stares at them for, like, two hours. Uh, This is where my note said, why are you sitting down? Stand up and murder. (laughs) 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 He wakes them up before murdering them, because I guess honor or whatever. Stabs one in the chest, kind of wrestles another down into the fire, and I guess he burns sort of, to death. It, it's kind of unclear, actually, how he dies, but I'll accept that he's dead. Yeah, as long as he gets there in the end. Yeah. And uh, the boy runs to Maretta, and uh, Tora takes him, rips him away, and throws him against a wall, and he, too, is killed. And so that's why we were obviously talking so much before about how we feel about the boy. He clear, Tora clearly feels guilt about this, and Maretta seems upset about this, I am not upset about this. I feel like I'm supposed to be upset about this, and I just cannot make myself care. I think that what the intention is for Bergman is upset over the loss of life, and in particular the the life of supposed innocence. So going back to Karn's death, I mean, there there is something of a similarity, the fact that Karn and the boy both are essentially dying of blunt force trauma. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, apparently the two most innocent people within this story. You know, she's, you know, really fucking stupid and also really vapid and just kind of mean. But she is, you know, the virgin. Stupidity is a form of innocence. It is. It is a form of innocence. Yes. <laughs> but she is the innocent. She's, you know, the kind of the white figure. And also, I think the way they like the boy is very light mm-hmm. to kind of yeah. show that that there's that parallel there. And I think he is very interested in the class dynamic, even if I don't know he really successfully highlighted it, in that there is the class dynamic of you have, you know, this supposedly innocent figure of the boy and the innocent figure of Karin and what happens to them. And I think that he's trying to say that that's where the tragedy lies. 
Right. Yeah. Which I don't agree with it. I do but... see. Yeah. No. And I, I, I see what he's trying to do. I ultimately can't see those figures as as being equivalent. I see them as being very, very different. And I see the boy as being very much not an innocence mm-hmm. in terms of how I interpret it. No, I agree because, like we talked about, he I, had he had yeah. he had the opportunity. He not only had the opportunity, he also had the means. Yes. Absolutely. And so that aspect of it and the kind of emphasis on this guilt, I just, I'm just not here for it. I'm not here for the story being, I'm frustrated in the first place of the fact that the story is about Torres' vengeance and that he's the one who gets to do this. Yeah. And that then it's about him and what happened to him and his story, that she doesn't have the opportunity to be a part of this because she's dead. Right. And the mother even doesn't honestly really have that much opportunity to be a part of it because of how gender dynamics work. Right. Meretta is just kind of in the background there. She's almost there for exposition. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, she is the person who is ultimately responsible for having discovered the truth and then... Right. But but still, but she is really just then kind of there. And uh, so she's... So ultimately, like, it really is Torah's story. And... Uh, the fact that then, and the fact that then he has the nerve to feel bad about it. It's like, I am just not here for like, you're feeling guilty about murdering a bunch of rapists. I'm just not here for it. It's, I mean, not about you, dude. Yeah. And yeah, they then go to find Karen's body, which is then an entire just goddamn parade of everybody trying to make Karen's rape and murder about them. It is. And there's also that really weird moment where he grabs Moretta by the arm and drags her along. Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of weird and icky. Moretta then kind of expresses her like feelings as they're en route about how she feels guilt and that uh, like this is like the devil's doing because she loved Corin too much and felt jealousy that Corin like, I don't know, liked her dad more than she liked her. And uh, Tora makes this like weird ambiguous comment about like, we will th- we will amuse on where the guilt lies as they find the corpse and weep over it. This is the other moment where I was uh, like, kind of like, oh, is there, are they like implying an incest thing? Is that he like kind of grabs her ass? Yeah. Of like his dead daughter's corpse? Yeah. And then it's actually like after he does that, that he like then stands up and runs off and kind of goes toward a river and is... Uh, kind of like yelling at God then essentially about why did you allow this to happen, including both the rape and murder and his vengeance, portraying them as equivalent in a way which I hate. Right. And he's not taking responsibility for anything that he has done. Right. And then also simultaneously obviating the rapists of responsibility. If, if essentially all of it is the responsibility of God. Right. You have free will. Yes. And they had free will and... Because of that combination, they're now dead, which is good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and his kind of insistence on, like, displacing this onto God and making this then about his guilt and, once again, existential angst, because Bergman likes medieval existential angst, Mm -hmm. I just find very irritating. Yeah. Also, I mean, and this is really minor compared to all the other issues, I feel like Karin's body was a little too bendy, considering it had been out there for, like, a whole day. Yeah, we we are not great on rigor mortis here. (laughs) No, I mean, and obviously you and I both work in the humanities, so I don't really know the specifics of this science. But it feels like that body would have started to, you know, stiffen up there. Maybe, maybe that's 
part of the miracle. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, as we know, there is, you know, maybe it's the spring flowing underneath her body. Right. And, you know, interesting things happen with holy corpses in the Middle Ages. So, you know, there's a lot of really crazy shit happening in Sweden. Uh Uh-huh. Sweden. It's a weird place. Satora vows that he will build a church in honor of his daughter and specifies in particular that he will build a church of mortar and stone, which is implied as something, uh, you know, brand new in Sweden that they've just heard about. Mm -hmm. And then as they remove her body, a spring gushes forth. Everybody kneels. Ingeri cleanses herself in the spring. So there's a lot symbolically happening there. And they cleanse Corinne's body as well. Of course, a much better miracle would have been to have her not raped and murdered in the first place. But I guess we'll take what we can get. So I actually think Ingeri's kind of cleansing and baptism that's happening is the only Mm -hmm. time a character takes any kind of responsibility for their actions. Yes, I agree that she clearly, I feel like she has a reasonable amount of guilt and also then takes this moment to kind of feel like she is cleansing, like taking responsibility for her actions, but also cleansing herself and atoning for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't love in general the idea of a woman's rape being about other people at like other people in general. Right. But the aspect of that, that I think is by far done best is in Gary. Yes. But I also don't think it's intentional. <laughs> or it's, I think it's intentional, but only in a purely... I think he's interested in the symbolism of uh, Corin's purity and in Gary's impurity and her purifying herself, essentially using Corin in that way. No, I do think that's intentional, but I don't yeah. think that it's... it's. I mean, what you and I are finding in this female character having, frankly, the best, most interesting arc in the movie, I don't know that he was that intentional in that because his emphasis is on Tura. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened here? Fade to black. Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I hate to say it in our next section, Veda at Falso, there's actually like some things that he did a good job. Like, this is arguably he did a better job on historically. Yes, so it's a response, actually. Interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a few instances of directors responding to complaints to movies. In 1915, D.W. Griffith made the incredibly racist Birth of a Nation that, in fact, in part sparked a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And then people said, hey, dude, that's racist. And the next year, he made a movie called Intolerance, all about how we should be tolerant of other people. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I assumed he was just a racist. I mean, he probably was. But no, he did kind of ma- he did make a follow-up movie. So there are there are instances of directors realizing maybe I shouldn't done, have done that, so maybe I'll do this. So Ingmar Bergman doing Seventh Seal and getting so much of the history wrong because he just didn't give a shit is far less incendiary than what D.W. Griffith did cuz, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and blackface. Right. But he did acknowledge, okay, there are some historical inaccuracies here that I could have done better on. And that's how he kind of approached the Virgin Spring. And that's, I think, how he approached the particular ballad that he chose to base this film on. That's really interesting because there were a couple, of, there were a number of details here and there, especially that I was uh, like, thought were really interesting that like these were things that had medieval roots. So the kind of instigating. Uh, I guess, reason for her to be leaving the house uh, is uh, this uh, taking the candles for the virgin 
that is a tradition that has medieval roots. It's particularly associated with the Feast of Candlemas, which is a feast that's in honor of the purification of the Virgin after the birth of Christ. So, and that kind of that and that kind of specific wasn't mentioned, and I couldn't find too much about it being more of a year-round tradition. But at least the concept seems at least something that has, to some extent, medieval roots. Okay. Yeah, I read a French folk tale that I was told was basically the French version of Tevia. Mm. And a lot of it focuses around Candlemas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, but also, I mean, I'm not Catholic, so I have no idea what Candlemas is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so so that's the kind of big thing is that it's, you know, it's the, uh, the Virgin's purification ceremony that she undergoes after the birth of Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it's associated then in medieval Catholicism uh, with candles and uh, that yeah specifically there would be a practice if you would bring candles to the church to be blessed okay yeah so the kind of con and also i think and also there certainly are in addition it certainly is the case that donating candles to the church is something that was very standard Mm -hmm. so i'm not quite sure exactly which is supposed to be going on here i guess in terms of her bringing the candles to the church but as a the Candlemas aspect seems to make more sense in terms of the she has to do this because she's a virgin thing. Yeah. But in general, it seemed at least like a kind of tradition that has uh, that had roots in the Middle Ages and wasn't something that was just totally invented out of whole cloth. Okay. I also really appreciated the emphasis on the value of textiles. Yeah. In terms of the clear value of her garments mm-hmm. that in the Middle Ages... Uh, something like what she was wearing that could have been like a large portion of somebody's dowry yeah and it probably was intended in fact to be part of her dowry or trousseau that these are high quality and then therefore also very high value objects so but Bergman did something similar with that in seventh seal when he mentions the virgin wearing blue Yes, that he mentioned specifically that she's wearing blue and, um, yeah, and it's that, like, essentially, like, blue pigment is uh, the most expensive pigment in the Middle Ages, and that, in part because of that, it becomes the kind of color that the Virgin Mary is usually wearing. Right, so there does seem to be an awareness of the importance of of fashion in this era, and fashion particularly yeah. as a status symbol. Yes, and... Uh, it's very clear throughout. You can tell looking at the character, like you can tell immediately looking at the characters, uh, you can identify their socioeconomic status very, yeah. very clearly. And that's clear in general. And uh, I really like also the emphasis on the like 15 maidens wove this shift mm-hmm. that it very much emphasizes like an immense amount of labor went into producing something like this with its very elaborate in terms of both the the fabric it looks like would have been expensive but then also the embroidery requires an immense amount of labor yeah and then it also is indicated that this is an object worth stealing and reselling right and also knowing what the customer should be for that garment mm-hmm. exactly that this is the kind of household which would be willing and able to purchase a garment of this kind. Which they had. Yes, they had indeed. (laughs) He wasn't wrong, although actually it was in that regard a very stupid move in that if I were them, you would have, like, you would have thought they actually, they should have gone farther away before trying to sell it. That's what I was going to say. They probably should have, you know, traveled a few more villages over 
Right. I mean, they clearly haven't run a, run into a lot of, like, nice households. Yeah. And the likelihood that the first one they ran into might just might be the one from whom the woman they just murdered came from. Or, at le- or like, at least that, like, they would know her. Yeah, yeah. They, they're a lot of stupid people in this movie. Yeah, so that's very dumb. Yeah. But, yeah, but the general, the general, I would say, emphasis on the cost of and value of and the labor involved in producing fine garments in the middle ages Mm -hmm. and uh, and the fact that also like this is kind of implied like this is her one very nice dress yeah that also is very true to i mean that makes sense to me for a family of approximately this status in the middle ages that you know i mean they're not royalty or anything i'm actually a little unclear as to exactly what their status are but they're press like they're clearly like relatively wealthy maybe kind of minor nobility it's not exactly i mean it does it seems like they own land exactly they clearly own land like they could in fact be like very rich peasants essentially yeah those undoubtedly existed i would say either like very rich peasants or like very minor nobility Mm -hmm. would be what i would guess but regardless in terms of like how the household is portrayed it seems like the level of wealth that it makes sense that she would have a probably like one very nice dress and another like three or four, you know, everyday garments. Yeah. Doesn't seem like the kind of garment they should let her go on, on horseback into the church to deliver candles. No, not at all. But it's implied that like, she's asking this and it like, it is implied that like, she's asking this and uh, it is out of the ordinary. And the fact that they're allowing this is spoiling her. Oh, definitely. It feels like, you know, when kids get re- a really fancy new dress and they decide they want to wear it on a Target run with mom. Right, exactly. And, like, kids, to- well, five-year-olds totally do that. I feel like 17-year-olds don't, and that maybe is part of the problem. No, no, I definitely meant five-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Which Karin is yeah. not. Yeah, so so she's too old to be acting the way that she is, which is a different story. But, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like, yeah, it's very clear that like, this is basically her like one super nice dress. It's actually for like special occasions. It's what she should be wearing to church on Sunday. It's what she should be wearing. Like when somebody comes to dinner, who is somebody they might try to marry her to like, that's what the dress is for. It's probably what she was wearing when she was feverishly dancing the night before. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Karen. Yep. The architectural history is also decent here. The uh, so there's a ballad that I'll discuss a little bit more later, which in- was actually intended to describe the legend surrounding the building of a church in the 12th century. And in fact, this is exactly the moment when in Sweden you start to see Romanesque style churches that are being built in stone. And before that, most of these Swedish churches were built in timber, in contrast, in fact, to some other places in the medieval world. So uh, the person who kind of talks about being in all these other places and seeing these stone and mortar churches, that's very plausible if he had traveled to, say, Germany or France uh, or England or Spain, that he would have seen stone Romanesque churches. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I took an art history class way back at community college, so I am not an expert, but... The use of stone and mortar was, like, right after the year 1000, 
from what I understand. Yeah, it's increasingly common, yeah, right around the year 1000, where you see, I mean, an increase in wealth and also a huge proliferation of churches. And those churches are increasingly mostly made of stone with uh, some use of timber, with uh, probably mostly a kind of use of timber in the roofs. Right. So, yeah, so this is, say, we'll just say for the kind of sake of argument in like 1130, mm-hmm. uh, we'll just say. And so, uh, assuming kind of around then, yeah, it's definitely plausible that somebody who had traveled around other parts of Europe would have seen stone churches. The person who talks about that also mentions in particular seeing stained glass windows. Right. And uh, which is certainly very possible. There are stained glass windows dating back to around the year 1000. There wouldn't be as many stained glass windows as if he was traveling around a little later because it's the Gothic style that essentially has more windows and really allows stained glass to really shine and develop as a medium. But still, for somebody coming from Sweden and not used to seeing it at all, I'm sure the Romanesque one still would have seemed very nice. Would have seemed nice and would have been, I think, particularly of note. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, even though what he's talking about is not, you know, such chapelle in Paris. Right. It still, I'm sure, would have been uh, something like very, very striking and impressive. So I walked into Saint-Chapelle having no idea because I'd never, it was not on our, our list of things to visit. I was visiting a friend who lives in Paris and because she lives there, she kind of takes it, you know, takes for granted that all this great stuff is there. Yeah. So we bought a ticket for um, Le Conciergerie, the prison where mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette had been held. And it came as a joint ticket with Saint-Chapelle. Right. So we went to both. And we, you know, neither of us had been, we didn't really know what to expect. And we go up to the second level where all the glasses and I look at her and I go, holy shit. <laughs> that is the correct response to saint Yeah. Cause it is absolutely stunning. Yeah. And I knew what to expect when I first saw it. And that at least I'd, I'd seen photos. I'd looked at the stain. I'd like looked at like images of the stained glass in particular and still, like, the moment of first seeing it, honestly, even the moment of, like, seeing it again, having seen it multiple times, like, it's just an amazing, amazing place. It is. It's absolutely breathtaking. And, I mean, for me to be completely, basically, I went into it knowing nothing, kind of the way you went into this movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> except it went way better for me. <laughs> right. It's, both of us had an extreme experience of seeing something for the first time with zero expectations. Uh-huh. but yeah no I mean it's really a truly fabulous work of art and Mm -hmm. yeah so you know the the kind of things that you would have seen in the uh, you know early 12th century are not quite that as of yet but still would have been very fabulous and impressive to somebody coming from an environment where he's mostly used to these like timber churches timber churches and also the time and the effort it takes to put up these structures Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, so many of these uh, Gothic cathedrals really took centuries to build. And he probably would have even seen in the, you know, potentially would have even seen kind of works in progress. Um, Right. There's all sorts of, you know, fun stories about the like progression of uh, church building and the fact that they really did take centuries. My favorite one is that if you go to see the cathedral in Toulouse, they had a Romanesque church and were sort of slowly demolishing parts of the Romanesque while they built the Gothic. But the Gothic was basically a few feet off of the plan of the original Romanesque cathedral. And they ran out of money and never finished the Gothic cathedral (laughs) and eventually just kind of awkwardly attached them. 
And so the cathedral is like a, it has like, is like an S shape kind of. Huh. <laughs> Cause there's this like little like swerve that it does to connect the Gothic church, which is uh, in one place uh, to the Romanesque church, which is basically like 20 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very funny. And then also, I mean, the cathedral in Beauvais too. I mean, similarly, they like kept the Romanesque part in existence so that the so that it could be like a functional nave while they are building the gothic apse the whole construction was constantly plagued with issues because they decided bless their hearts to build the tallest gothic structure in the world oh. and uh, so but that's very hard so that means they have the tallest gothic apse in the world and so that's very very tall and then it goes way way down to the little squat romanesque nave <laughs> So, yeah, he probably would have seen them in progress, um, which is, yeah, honestly, I'm sure jarring and incredibly impressive anyway, given what it takes to oh, build yeah. those structures. Yeah, I mean, these, like, are mass. I mean, even, you know, even, like, the Romanesque ones, which is what he would have seen were primarily, like, these are, like, massive, uh, elaborate stone structures and uh, really required a lot of uh, technical skills to be developed uh, during the Romanesque period and then uh, continuing into the Gothic period. Right. So. So, yes, I think the awareness of that I appreciate. They, uh, he also seems very interested in the phenomenon of the kind of continuation of Old Norse paganism alongside Christianity. And uh, it is indeed, I would say, very much the right time for that, that 1200 is continued basically the kind of end of the period of Christianization with the idea that basically Christianity is mostly won by around 1200. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously different in different places. It differs based on social status, but it definitely makes sense to me in context that there would be a family that's basically Christian and uh, perhaps kind of quietly, they have at least one member of the household who is like not so Christian. Right. And I think it also makes sense that it is particularly a servant. Yes, absolutely. And that also it is pretty much indicated that she perhaps doesn't talk very much about the fact that she's... uh, um, that she is still a believer in the Norse gods, yeah. which also makes sense given the power relationship that the expectation would have been that because she was in their household, she would be expected to religiously essentially follow their rules. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so it makes sense. That, like, this is clearly not something that she's very open about. Then there's one kind of pretty big thing that honestly, in a lot of ways, didn't ring true to me. And that is actually how it ultimately addresses vengeance culture. Okay. And in part, I think this has to do with an issue of the interpretation of the original ballad. So the 13th century ballad that is the main source material. Uh, first of all, we should apparently be glad that we only got to see one woman get raped and murdered since there were three in the ballad that was the basis uh, for the movie. And in some versions of the story, there are seven. That's great. Lovely. But the core difference, other than the number of women, is that it turns out in the end that the rapists are these people are that the rapists are actually uh, Torres' own sons that he had sent out a couple of sons, two or three sons, to basically fend for themselves and make a name for themselves on their own, and then they became robbers and highwaymen, and ultimately then raped and murdered their own sisters. And the reason his vengeance is therefore a problem in the ballad and that it inspires these feelings of guilt is that, first of all, there 
is guilt that he has in terms of having created this entire situation by sending his own sons away in that particular manner. But then also that even if they kind of deserve it, killing your kin is still a no-no. Right. And there's still a taboo around that because they're your sons, even if they also raped your daughters. Right. And so uh, the vengeance because of that is not uncomplicated. The problem is that the film takes away that specific twist. And without that twist, from a medieval perspective, in a lot of ways, his act of vengeance actually would have been relatively uncomplicated. And there's no reason to think in a medieval context that it would have inspired that extreme level of guilt that it apparently does. Even in a context where you are seeing the transition away from uh, that kind of vigilante vengeance as being the ideal or preference or the way society is structured, even when you're seeing an increasing emphasis on the fact that no, you should instead be going through courts. Still, when that kind of vengeance happens, and it does, uh, it's very common for people to get pardoned because the expectation is that that is a kind of crime if somebody... I mean, essentially that men are considered to basically have the right to commit crimes, including murder, in defense of the honor of their household, which is maintained in part through the honor of its women. Right. And so uh, men are essentially excused for murdering people who raped their daughters or sisters, or for that matter, killing their wives if they commit adultery. Mm Mm-hmm that those are the kinds of crimes that are very likely to get pardoned. And you get the sense that even when they are considered to, when it is considered to be no longer the social norm to take vengeance in that matter, rather than it ultimately going through a court of law, there doesn't really seem to be a major social sanction against it. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's probably similar to much of what we talked about with seventh seal is that, Bergman is more concerned with these 20th century conventions than he is with that particular medieval convention. So he's more concerned with how the guilt is going to play out in the 20th century than how it would have more historically, more accurately historically would have been carried out in the era in which he has decided to set his film. Exactly. So uh, that's, I would say, in a lot of ways, that kind of biggest area where because of that, because of where his concerns ultimately lie, he creates the story about vengeance and guilt, which he sees in this very particular way, but which is very fundamentally not a medieval way of thinking about these questions. What I'm wondering now, though, is if he could have, and I think he could have, done the same story, but set in the 20th century. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that his audience would would know as much about this vengeance culture. I certainly didn't. Mm-hmm. To the point where they would notice that it is not how it was would have would have been to be bothered by it or to even take note mm-hmm. and kind of go, huh, that's funny. But given his concern with with really the contemporary issues that he is grappling with in his own time, I think it would have made perfect sense. And I don't think the story really would have lost anything he was trying to do had he said it in say 1959 Sweden. My main guess is that. The main reason he didn't in the main thing is that people would have been more likely to then wonder where are the cops. Okay, yeah, that too. But also then I think there's also, I don't know how familiar Swedes are with these ballads. 
Right. So it also, I don't know the answer to that either. And so it might also be the case that there might have been Swedish people who had enough familiarity with the ballad that then he would have had to kind of wrestle with people being aware of it as a modernized adaptation of a medieval ballad. Right. And I don't know how, what the response to that would have been. Yeah. Again, we don't know what's going on in Sweden. Right. And, you know, not that those adaptations of other medieval works don't exist. There's, apparently there is a modernized novel, novelistic adaptation of Tristan and Isolde, which I am curious about. Oh, boy. Uh Uh-huh. I feel like it's probably bad, but I'm curious. I'm I'm not really sure how it could be good. No, I'm not sure how it could be either. Yeah. Huh. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, so there is a possibility, but then there's obviously concerns that come up in modernization and I feel like for this yeah the biggest one would be like people then saying like so where are the police yeah you just murdered three people in your house right (laughs) that makes more sense in the middle ages that you could murder three people in your house and not immediately have and also a child yeah I think audiences would have had a bigger problem murdering a child in 1959 yeah, and also that that entire phenomenon actually of like these weird people, kind of marginal figures wandering around who don't really have a home and that they have this child that's with them. Yeah. I think the figure of the child would have a, I think it would have been harder for the figure of the child to not have a inspired, a more immediate, like we have to call I'm assuming there was something like child protective services in mid 20th century Sweden. I would think so. I mean, they're, they're relatively socialist. I mean, especially compared to the United States. So. Yeah. So I think that would show up, that would kind of be an immediate cause for concern as well. Is that, I mean, I feel like in the, like certainly in like right now, if you made a movie and some of the characters were like these two vaguely creepy seeming homeless men wandering around with a kid, I feel like the immediate like question a lot of people would have would be like, should I try to do something about the kid? Yeah, and I wonder if it's... So we talked a little bit about depictions of rape in things that are either set in the medieval era or inspired by the medieval era is mm-hmm. kind of showing this divide between what happened then and it was terrible, but now we've made progress and it doesn't happen now. But I'm also wondering if this is an issue where there's a certain awareness of certain kind of crimes people are aware of now so if they watch something with you know these two grown men traveling with this child and it's taking place in like 1959 or 1960 Mm. people are going to be more aware of some that a crime might be happening as opposed to watching something taking place in the medieval era where discussions of that kind of crime are not necessarily common right yeah so i so i think it would be difficult to purely modernize Mm mm-hmm even though ultimately, I yeah, that I think the kind of questions that he's ultimately interested in are modern ones. Right, right. Yeah. I think also the other thing that is medieval enough, at least, that it would have been odd to some extent in a modern context, even though this obviously doesn't exist, is uh, there is also this very particular emphasis on and use of a uh, martyrdom and innocence and uh, the miraculous Mm -hmm. which 
even if it's ultimately kind of stemming from perhaps his own kind of ideas about innocence, right. also does link to the Middle Ages in ways that make a lot of sense. And of course, this is an element that's coming from his medieval source material. Right. The uh, idea that this kind of spring came up at the, um, uh, at the spot where these innocent girls, multiple, were killed. Yeah, that kind of purification aspect. Yeah. And, and that was something that I wanted to do kind of talk about in a little bit more detail uh, as well in the, uh, the Historia at Veritas section is about this kind of martyrs and miracles aspect. And because this is very much uh, still a moment in which, I mean, martyrdom is so important in medieval Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so part of that is the cult of saints is very, very central. And martyrdom is considered to be a near automatic pathway to sainthood. Right. So there are obviously some people who are not martyred and who become saints because of the reputation of sanctity that they had in lifetime. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of figures who are at least reputed saints, even if not always recognized by the church, who are recognized as such primarily because they are essentially martyred innocents. One of the best examples of that, unfortunately, are the alleged victims of Jewish ritual murders. Yeah. So these are all young boys. There's nothing about them to indicate that they had any particular sanctity or holiness during their lifetime. Mm -hmm. They were just innocent boys who then allegedly were murdered by Jews and ritually crucified. And then in the later versions, their blood used in matzah. I just had to explain blood libel to my students. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And uh, these children were, uh, none of them were ultimately canonized. Uh, One of them in the 15th century was beatified, although they reversed that at the end, uh, unbeatified him um, during Vatican II. (laughs) Decided it was a bad look. But these children, a number of them, were popularly and locally recognized as saints, and there were cults of uh, veneration of these saintly figures that grew up around them. Mm-hmm. And even to use an even more in some ways bizarre example, another odd saintly figure, very much not recognized by the church officially, is that there was a legend that arose about a dog who was protecting a child, saved the child from a snake, But then the child's father came in, saw a lot of blood, and thought the dog had attacked the child and killed the dog, and then found out what had really happened. And the dog was locally worshipped as a saint. I mean, shouldn't most dogs be? Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with that. I think that's actually, like, the dog's probably, like, much better than most actual saints recognized by the Catholic Church. The dog probably deserves it more. Oh, yeah, no, like, I'm all for St. Guinefort, the Holy Greyhound. (laughs) But it's also a figure that, like, it's not, like, a holy good Christian. It's a dog. Right. Who has this reputation for sanctity that stems from the fact that the dog was a martyred innocent. Really disappointed the dog's name wasn't Bernard. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) The real St. Bernard was kind of an asshole, sadly, so... (laughs) Uh, but not surprisingly. 
the real Saint Bernard, actually, uh, in particular, one of the ways in which he was an asshole was that he had like a real a real hatred for um, for Abelard, the philosopher, mm-hmm. and uh, was like a real dick about that. He also really hated um, one of the at the time uh, he actually actually also really hated Eleanor of Aquitaine during the time when she was Queen of France. So, OK, so we already know he's evil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he spent a lot of time bitching about Eleanor when she was married to Louis the Seventh. Well, that's his problem. Then. So, yeah. So one day I'd like to get a St. Bernard and name it Eleanor because I think that would be really funny. That would actually be pretty good. That's that. So, you know, at Westminster Abbey, have you noticed that Queen Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots are buried really close to each other? Oh, right. Yeah. And I, that, that <laughs> kind of reminds me of that, that kind of schadenfreude. Right. <laughs> of getting a St. Bernard and naming it Eleanor. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I would enjoy that. I've also seen him with his skull and I enjoyed that, too. It's in Trois. Is it? Uh-huh. As we talked about with other relics? Well, he died in the 12th century, so that probably is his skull. That one probably is his skull. Okay. I think when you have the people who actually died, like, who died in the Middle Ages, I think that they cared enough at that, like, at that point, like, there's enough, like, transmission, like, people paying attention to transmission. hmm Yeah. That I think heads from people in, like, in the, like, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, I think those are probably actually their heads. Okay. It's the, like, apostles that... Those aren't their heads. Munich claiming to have the skull of John the Baptist and his mother Elizabeth. Yeah, like that's that's a no. But I would say even like by like seventh eighth century, I would in many cases trust that that's really that person's head. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing that very much is uh, that the film kind of gets at an interesting way is that uh, is that there are a lot of important associations with the physical body of the saint, and so in this and so here you have the spring that kind of wells up in the place where her corpse has been lying for several days. Mm-hmm. In uh, a lot of kind of real cases of people dying and after they died beginning to kind of get this reputation for perhaps being saints you see this immense amount of emphasis on their physical remains and on the power that their physical remains have so while miraculous springs aren't that common there are a lot of stories about things like healing you know people being healed by the remains of a particular saint and of the bodies of saints even having an interesting amount of power in terms of being able to kind of make choices in some ways about where there are shrines dedicated to them, with the best examples being the category of saints known as the cephalophore saints, which I believe literally in Greek means head carrying, (laughs) because this is a category of saints who were beheaded, and then upon being beheaded, lifted up their heads from the ground and walked with them some distance until they eventually, I guess, dropped them and collapsed, at which point it was decided that that would be the location upon which a church, they would be buried and, you know, eventually a kind of shrine or church would uh, develop for, in honor of this particular saint. So uh, Saint-Denis, actually in Paris, this is uh, one of the, the cephalophore saints is, uh, is Saint-Denis, the, uh, the Bishop of Paris, who went a little bit outside the city and stopped there and uh, that's where the church is allegedly. I have not actually been there. It's where all the French kings are buried, or, well, then they kind of, like, fucked up the tombs, but it's where all the French kings at least were buried. Yes, I mean, I'll go at one point, but it's one of those things where, you know, whenever I go to Paris, it's, they're usually pretty quick trips, because I'm elsewhere in Europe, and I just stop to visit my friend before I either go home or go somewhere else. Yeah, that's fair, but yeah, I I definitely recommend Saint-Denis, and it's also the first Gothic church. Oh, wow. 
yeah, Abbot Suget of Saint-Denis, uh, like, allegedly, like, invented Gothic architecture, basically. Yeah, as, like, his thing to do. I'll tell Emma Jane we have to go there next. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I recommend Saint-Denis. Okay. And uh, there is a great young adult novel about Eleanor of Aquitaine, a proud taste for Scarlet and Miniver. I don't remember if we've talked about this before. I think you might have mentioned it when we talked about Lion in Winter. I think I did, but so it's Eleanor and some other people are in heaven reminiscing about their lives while they're waiting for Henry II to finally get out of purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> because it's taken him much longer. Clearly, and, yeah. Um, Abbot Suget is one of the people who is uh, is up there with her. That sounds so, fun, actually. Yeah, so another contemporary of Eleanor's. Bernard is not. Bernard is not hanging with them. Then, you know, they're probably not going to invite him. Yeah. To anything. I wouldn't if I were them. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And uh, then just the kind of final comment I was going to make about this is uh, that also, I think this is one of the ways also in which it would be hard to do a modern adaptation of this is because while... Uh, Undoubtedly, there are claims of miracles happening in the modern world. And while undoubtedly, even in the Middle Ages, there was skepticism sometimes surrounding miracles, I think that the the miracle aspect of the end of this works much better in a context where people, many people assume that that kind of miracle is possible in a way that isn't quite as normal in modernity. Right. There's a little bit more cynicism toward that and pessimism toward that. Exactly. Yeah for the next week baby la nostra segment where we come up with our own version of the story mm-hmm. i'm gonna be honest i was having a really hard time with this i came up with mine this morning yeah so i was really struggling because i i just fundamentally i guess i kind of feel like we just kind of need to stop making movies about rape right we do and so I was really having a very hard time with that and with struggling with that. I think I'm sort of, to be honest, coming up with this a little bit on the fly now because I've really been struggling, mm-hmm. but inspired by thinking about this kind of martyrdom and miracles aspect, I think actually the way, I, the thing that I might do if I were going to do a film inspired by this one would be to have a a movie that's a series of vignettes centered around women who, for various reasons, are going to the spring, which has become a shrine. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And it could even be interesting to do it, uh, perhaps kind of broadly, kind of cross-historical, and like some of them would be in the Middle Ages, and maybe some of them would, in fact, be more modern, because, of course, there still are people today who go to shrines in this way. Yeah. And... uh, Yeah, so I've really just come up with this, and so I have zero casting, but I think that if I was going to do something, that would be the way to do it, would be to essentially, I think that would be an interesting way of dealing with this kind of miracle aspect and the way in which people think about innocence and martyrdom and sanctity, but also be able to basically entirely skip depicting the rape and then make the story at least about women as opposed to how men are affected by women getting raped. Yeah, that would actually be more interesting, especially because this particular movie deals with a man and his faith. Yes, exactly. And so I think a story that would be about women and their faith, given the rape element, it might not be like, I might include a figure who had been raped and was kind of struggling with uh, 
trying to find a way to heal in the wake of that trauma. Yeah. I think could be interesting to have that be perhaps one of, if not necessarily the only story to incorporate there. No, and I but but the difference is, you know, what we talked about earlier, if you're going to have a woman be raped in whatever medium, it has the story has to be about her. Exactly. There was a show on the CW about Mary of Scotland before she was Mary mm-hmm. of Scotland when she was married to Francis. Yeah. Rain. And at one point, I remember, I never actually watched it because I didn't care. But I remember <laughs> reading an interview once where apparently the creator of the show had to defend her decision to have Mary raped. And huh. the justification was that she was interested in Francis's reaction to his wife being raped. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Exactly. If your first thought is, God, how would her significant other react? Don't do it. You're yeah, wondering exactly. about the very, very wrong things. I think in my version of the movie, I think I might just not have any men. That's. I think I might just have the movie without a single man. So there is a movie like that. Yeah. From 1939, and it was directed by a man, but the entire cast is made up of women. Every picture or painting depicted in the film, even in just background, features a woman. Every animal on screen is a female animal. Mm. Yeah, they talk a shit ton about men. Mm -hmm. It's a comedy. It's called The Women. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did a remake about like 10 years ago. I think Meg Ryan was in it and I think Candace Bergen. But the original, I mean, it it is a lot about men. It's a lot of the cattiness. But still, the only gender that you see on screen are women. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think in my version of the movie, I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to have uh, literally zero men, and I will have uh, women who are going to this shrine and attempting to find some kind of healing there. That's totally fair. Yeah. Okay. So for my movie, what I was really kind of interested in um, is not the faith aspect, but yeah. the class aspect. Yeah. Because I don't think you really see that very often in medieval films Right. Why the way, I mean, you might touch on it a little bit. Honestly, probably Robin Hood does the best job of talking about class. Yeah. And even then, it's not really an analysis of class. Right. It's basically a rich guy committing crime for charity. Right. <laughs> so my movie would focus on Ingeri. Mm-hmm. And I think it would start before she gets pregnant, but mm. with how she is treated within this Christian family and their Christian traditions and how mm-hmm. that does not necessarily correspond to how they treat what is essentially the help. Yeah. Um, and then it would go a little bit, I mean, I don't, I would cut out the rape entirely. It's not really important, but also the rich yeah. family doesn't matter to me yeah. at this point because it is in Gary's story. So they only matter in so much as they affect her, which to be fair is quite a lot yeah. because she lives with them and lives under their roof. But it's mm-hmm. more seeing that class aspect of how yeah. the rich impact the poor especially when they are casting themselves as philanthropic, mm-hmm. as God-fearing Christian people, and really take the aspect of charity and love being synonymous seriously, yeah. but also hypocritically. Right. I don't particularly have casting because I figured if this is set in medieval Sweden, I should probably cast a Swedish person. But I also don't really know that many Swedish actresses working today who would be age-appropriate. Yeah. 
the ones that I am aware of are all in their 30s or early 40s. So there is the obvious yeah. one is Alicia Vikander, and mm-hmm. then there's Numi Rapace, and then there is Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. But none of them would be age appropriate to actually be this servant girl seeing her kind of come of age in this household and seeing what happens to her. But that is the movie that I am more interested in telling. Yeah. There would probably have to be men in it, but much like those cameos from Ingrid, Ingrid, that's the good one, from Ingmar Bergman's stable corral of actors, it, you know, mm-hmm. the men would kind of come in and out and then just leave. Yeah. So, and I also don't really think her baptismal purification is necessary at the end either, though I yeah. do think that there, there can be a reckoning with her own behavior while mm-hmm. fully acknowledging this environment in which she's grown up in. So that would be my movie. Yeah. Would you go as far to have the child be born and see what happens with that? I think so. And I think that that's part of, um, based on the conversation we were having about Seventh Seal with y- Se- yeah, Seventh Seal with Yoff and Mia's child and their mm-hmm. concern for what's going to happen to that child and what the future will bring. And I think that in Gary being very interested and very much embedded into this life, it would concern her of where her child would end up. And yeah. given that she is essentially the character with the only woman in the film with any kind of agency, mm-hmm. she would be very much aware that she would try to find potential other options for her child. Yeah. And I think that that would be interesting to try and see how she can try and figure out to finagle her child out of the situation that she is in. Because much like we talked about with Seventh Seal, there's not a whole lot of room for upward mobility. Right. There's a very limited set of options. And it also probably depends also to some extent on the child's gender that there are different sets of options potentially available to girls versus boys. Right. So no, I think I would take her like pre-pregnancy and then throughout the pregnancy. I mean, and it might very well. I'm tempted to say, you know, happy ending. I'd like to see her riding off away from this place. But also I know what her prospects are if she rides away from this place with a kid. Yeah without especially without a destination in mind right so that that part's a little bit tricky but yeah I would be more interested in finding out in Gary's story rather than having her be kind of this barbaric figure dark figure to contrast Karen's innocence yeah so yeah no I think that would be really interesting and yeah I agree that she would be the figure most worth pulling out in a lot of ways yeah yeah I mean while at the same time you'd be you know talking about the hypocritical nature of you know, either low-level nobility or really rich peasantry. Right, yeah. So just having God on your side, you know, claiming you have God on your side doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to be a dick. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Now comes time to rate this film in the enumeratio section. Uh Uh-huh. What were you thinking on this? Two. I'm thinking 1.5. Okay. Yeah, I'm giving it a two just possibly out of respect for the pedigree of the film and the people mm-hmm. behind it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it is well made, but also, and I, you know, it, it did take some chances as much as I don't want to see a woman raped on screen. I think the fact that they did show it is meant to show the brutality of it. Yeah. So I can kind of respect that, though it clearly should come with a warning. But at the same time, it just fucks everything up when it makes it to his story. Yeah, and that's ultimately where I am, is that a film that's a rape that's then made to be about the experiences of a man, I, I just can't. No. 1.5 is the, the highest that I feel like I can justify giving it. 
given that. I mean, it does pass the Ifdecker test. It does. It passes the Ifdecker test, and God, I hate to say it, it passes the Bechdel test. It does, but there are two named women who live to the end of three in Gary. Oh, wait, I forgot about Frida. Yeah, Frida, yep. Yep, yeah, there are there are three named women. And, yep, yeah, three named women who survive, and it, yeah, has an entire scene that mostly passes the Bechdel test. Yep. You know, which is, which is a surprise. That's, you know, that's why it's a 1.5, not a 1, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. 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 And I do think, I mean, there are some interesting things happening within Gary that aren't really yes. capitalized on the way they should have been, but they are there. Yes, that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me for our Ingmar Bergman retrospective. You're welcome. I mean, I did propose it. So thank you for sitting through two <laughs> Ingmar Bergman movies and dealing with existential questions. Yes, and this is an experience. I had not previously seen any Ingmar Bergman films, so now I have. And you've now seen Swedish movies. Yes, I've now seen Swedish movies. I'm going to admit, actually, just right before we finish up, when I first started watching the credits of The Seventh Seal, which is what I watched first, I definitely had moments of just thinking of the like faux Swedish credits at the beginning of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> but that's what you're supposed to think of. Right, but then they didn't... <laughs> Right. But I I just did it in reverse, right? That like the people watching Monty Python were supposed to have thought of Ingmar Bergman. And I'm just, yeah, and I'm doing that the other way around. And but, like, then it's like, oh, this isn't going to be funny. That was it. No, no. But now when you watch that part of, of Monty Python, it'll be funnier. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's like, these are like the Swedish credits before like this like dour fucking movie. Yeah. I keep doing that thing where even though I know I don't speak Swedish, I'll turn up the volume to try and understand it better. Right, yeah. It's the kind of universal, like, watching foreign films that you still turn up the volume even though you know you're not going to actually understand it. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, with Swedish, I mean, I could catch a few words because it is a Germanic language. So there were a few mm-hmm. things they said where I thought, okay, that sounds enough like German to where I know exactly what you're talking. I know exactly which word you're referencing, but not enough to put together right. a sentence. Um, like I said, I mean, between the two of us, Swedish is not one of our research languages. Right. And also, I kept thinking of the Swedish chef from... <laughs> The Muppets. <laughs> right. Since we just recorded, uh, I assume there are still not places in particular where the listeners could find you on the internet. No, though I do occasionally comment on the Facebook group. Yeah, so you can uh, find Morgan in the Media Evil Facebook group. Mm-hmm. You can find Media Evil in general there, as well as on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And of course, in your preferred podcatcher app. And uh, please, if you are listening and enjoy this podcast, five star reviews really help us, you know, really helps the podcast find uh, more listeners. Uh, and uh, so if you would review us in uh, Apple and Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it, and we'll read future five-star reviews in later episodes. And this is this is for me. I mean, five stars. It is the best podcast that I have ever been on. No one needs to know that it's the only <laughs> podcast I have ever been on. Exactly, exactly. You could you could you could give that review, and I'll read it on a future episode. <laughs> but you have had me do this three times now, so thank you. Yes, of course. You're very welcome. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Yeah. And finally, listeners can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Sarah F. Ducker. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.